This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you this week for the Jewish News Hour. We'll start off reading from JTA, Jewish Telegraphic Agency. National Museum of American Jewish History Emerges from Bankruptcy by Asaf Shalev. The National Museum of American Jewish History in Philadelphia will come out of bankruptcy in the following weeks after a former trustee stepped in to buy the museum building and lease it back for a nominal monthly rent of $1,000. Mitchell Morgan, a local real estate CEO, will pay the museum about $10 million for its downtown property as part of a plan approved by a federal judge on Wednesday. The plan also settles a debt with bondholders, including Morgan, who agreed to accept $14 million less than what they were owed. We're living in a time that requires us to reflect on our values and a time when our country needs institutions like the National Museum of American Jewish History that represent freedom and inclusivity, Morgan said in a statement. The deal allows the museum to buy its building back after 42 months for the $10.1 million uh, the $10.1 million sale uh, price plus 4%, Bloomberg Law reported. The museum filed for bankruptcy protection in March 2020 because it could not afford the debt from the construction of its new building, which opened on Independence Mall in 2010. The following month, the pandemic and bankruptcy process led the museum to furlough two-thirds of its staff, with the bankruptcy making the institution ineligible for federal relief under the Paycheck Protection Program. The museum was closed to visitors for public health reasons and since has operated virtually. A reopening date is forthcoming, the museum said in an update posted in July. Museum CEO Misha Galprin responded to the bankruptcy deal by calling Morgan a mensch and a hero. The initiative Mitch and his family has shown brings stability to this Philadelphia institution and preserves a beautiful treasure for the Jewish community, for the city of Philadelphia, and for our nation, Galprin said in a statement. In Rosh Hashanah call with rabbis, Biden calls for swift confirmation of Deborah Lipstadt to be anti-Semitism monitor by Ron Campeas, Washington. In a Rosh Hashanah call Thursday with a thousand rabbis across the denominational spectrum, President Joe Biden rededicated his presidency to combating hate and extremism and called on the Senate to swiftly confirm his nominee for anti-Semitism monitor, Deborah Lipstadt. In the afternoon webinar, Biden was asked how he intended to combat a spike in anti-Semitic incidents. He noted that Attorney General Merrick Garland was hiring staff to coordinate the prosecution of hate crimes and that his administration was tracking extremist groups in what he called America's first-ever comprehensive effort to take on the threat of domestic terrorism. The president also cited his nomination in July of Lipstadt to be the, sec uh, the State Department's anti-Semitism monitor. The Senate has yet to take up the nomination. Now there's no one more qualified, and I call for a swift confirmation in the Senate, Biden said of the Embry University Holocaust historian. Biden said he launched his campaign in April 2019 in part because of his frustration with former President Donald Trump's failure to unequivocally condemn the deadly neo-Nazi march in Charlottesville, Virginia in 2017. He said his children and grandchildren pressed him to run. 
We're not going to stand for our fellow Americans being intimidated and attacked for who they are, what they believe, and that's across the board, Biden said. Sometimes reform is preceded by serious, serious breach of decency, and people see it. Responding to questions on climate change and civil rights, Biden said he was committed to combating climate change and credited the Jewish community for taking the lead over the decades in the fight for civil rights. He backed current Jewish initiatives to roll back voting restrictions passed by some state legislatures. Describing his meeting last week in Washington with Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett, Biden noted their political differences. Bennett is a hawk and opposes some U.S. Middle East policies, particularly the U.S. leader's efforts to re-enter Iran, uh, to re-enter the Iran nuclear deal. But Biden said Bennett was a gentleman and pledged unwavering support for Israel. An Afghan refugee struggled to get her family out of the country. She says a Jewish group was her lifeline by Ron Compeyes. Tahira had fallen down in the crush of Afghans pressed against the gate of Kabul's airport. Her son, three years old, was uncontrollable. Her husband's breathing was uneven. She also had to consider her four other children. She had a lifeline on the phone, her supervisor at Jewish Family Services in Seattle. Cordelia Revels, the Director of Refugee and Immigrant Services for JFS Seattle, was on the other end of the line during Tahera's attempt to get into the airport, helping to get her employee out of the country. That was particularly terrifying, Revel said. A gun was pointed out at one of her young, chi- uh, uh, young children when they're being told they needed to back off. Rebels and JFS were instrumental in the extraction of Tahera and her family from Kabul as the city fell to the Taliban, a rare success story in the final weeks of the 20-year U.S. presence in Afghanistan as tens of thousands of Afghans who had worked with Americans rushed the airport seeking a way out. Tahera, who asked not to publish her family name to protect relatives still in Afghanistan, said Rebel's guidance during her final days in Kabul was life-changing, in part because her own desperation was keeping her from thinking clearly. When the Taliban came to Kabul, the situation was so terrifying that my mind was not working, said Tahera, but close contact with rebels allowed her to feel safe. She was in contact with me day and night, and somehow I was feeling that she's physically with me because she was, all the time, talking with me. Seattle's JFS, driven in part by a mission rooted in the perilous migrations Jews faced in the middle of the last century, was dedicated to getting Tahera home, and has also been tracking and aiding 27 other families as they have attempted to flee the country. Several decades ago, it was Jewish families desperately trying to flee to safety and people having an opportunity to help them and support them but deciding not to do that and knowing what happens when you don't do whatever you can to support your fellow human beings, Revel said. I think that makes the Jewish community's commitment to what these families are experiencing so strong. Tahera, 38, had worked for 15 years in Afghanistan on women's development issues for non-governmental organizations, some funded by the U.S. Agency for International Development, before applying to come to the United States. She arrived in Seattle in 2019. JFS was her designated resettlement agency, assisting her with obtaining a green card, finding an apartment, and gaining benefits. 
Once O'Hara learned that JFS was seeking staff to process other immigrants, she applied for the job. She also immediately sought to bring over her husband's three children from a previous marriage, a belabored process that took an additional two years. By mid-June of this year, the children were set to be interviewed at the U.S. Embassy in Kabul, but the interviews were canceled as the embassy started closing shop. Tahera arrived in Kabul in mid-July to attempt to shepherd her stepchildren back to the U.S. She traveled with two of her three other children, an eight-year-old girl and a three-year-old boy. Just prior to their arrival, Tahera's mother died of COVID. In Kabul, neighbors wondered why she was bothering to bring back her stepchildren. Everyone in Afghanistan was blaming me, saying that you can leave, you can leave with two of your kids, you don't need to stay here, Tahera said. But I'm a mom. I was not able to leave them in Afghanistan alone. The worst part for her was that such doubts infected her stepchildren. Starting Saturday when the Taliban came to Kabul, until Wednesday when we left Afghanistan, they were looking at me and they were not telling me anything, she said. But I was able to read from their eyes that you are going to leave us alone here because you have green cards and we do not have a visa, she said. So it was a nightmare for me. If I leave Afghanistan, I will keep all my kids with myself. Otherwise, I prefer to stay with them. But staying was a terrifying prospect. Tahera was born to a family of Afghan refugees living in Iran. Her family had returned to the country in 2004, three years after the U.S.-led forces ousted the Taliban. She had never experienced life under Taliban rule. Tahera managed to get her three stepchildren written into her passport at the last minute, but her troubles were just beginning. Even with permission to leave, she could not breach the line of soldiers, U.S. and Afghan alike, guarding the gate to the Kabul airport. She arrived at the airport and asked her husband to stay in the car with the kids. Her three-year-old, hearing gunfire, would not leave her side, so she held him as she approached the gate. The soldiers were shouting at the crowd to move back, firing over their heads. She encountered an American soldier. He asked me to get down. I said, no, I'm not getting down because my kids are here. I have permission to leave Afghanistan, Tahara said. He shot into the air and asked me to leave. In a second, there was 10 times, 20 times shooting in the air, and even then they were just putting their gun in front of us, asking us to leave. She fell down and hurt her hand. She returned to the car. She sent her husband, who had low blood, pressure, uh, low blood sugar and was having difficulty breathing, back to the gate on his own to make their case. It was no use. It was hard, Tahira said, not to give in to panic. One of the women that was there, she was trying to get into that airport. She was shouting, I lost my daughter. My daughter is not here. She was looking for her daughter. I was thinking, I have five kids who are with me. What if one of them is lost? Rebels, meanwhile, was consulting with No One Left Behind, an NGO founded by veterans who seek to bring out of conflict zones the locals who had assisted them. She relayed advice to Tahera, tactics for keeping her family together in the crush, and for how to address the U.S. troops. They had to basically demand to the soldier to make the soldier believe them, which I don't think is what people expected to have to do, Rebel said. So part of it was just preparing Tahera to, like, be extremely polite, but, like, do not take no for an answer. Rebels conveyed to Tahera that there was a new window. The Afghan soldiers would be leaving, and the U.S. soldiers on their own might be more amenable. So later in the day, Tahera returned with her family, carrying her three-year-old. The soldiers were not letting people into the gate. They were asking people to sit down, and no one was sitting down, 
and they were saying, We will shoot you, Tahera said. I shouted at one of the soldiers because he tried to push me back. He pulled all his weight on my son, put all his weight on my son, and I just pushed him back and shouted at him that you are going to kill my son, she said. He just kept quiet for five, six seconds. He was just looking at me. And then he asked me, where are your other kids? Come with me. Then he opened the door and let us continue to the airport. Tahera said she relied on the assistance of not just rebels, but also the entire JFS staff who sent her emails and texts checking in on her. It was really helpful for me. Somehow it gave me this courage, she said. In Afghanistan, most of the time, people are thinking about the race, about the tribe, about the color, about the face, she said. Jewish Family Services are not only helping the Afghan community, but they are also not only helping Russians, they are trying for everybody, no matter of race, no matter of tribe, no matter of color, nothing. They are not thinking about such things. Tahera, whose family arrived in Seattle this week after a stopover in Qatar, said she feels lucky to work for JFS Seattle. We are fully open during the COVID crisis, the only family service organization that was fully open, she said. So I'm really happy that I'm working there. The feeling was mutual, said Rebels. Even when her family was in Qatar, after getting out of Kabul, she was contacting me about other families she'd met who needed help and assistance and seeing what support she could provide them, she said. She's a really incredible person and we're extremely lucky to have her. The work isn't over. Tahera now wants to get her two sisters out of Afghanistan, one who was a teacher for a U.S.-funded project that assisted incarcerated children, is in hiding because the children's parents gave the Taliban her information as a means of carrying favor with the new rulers. And JFS Seattle continues to track the 27 other families it hopes to extract from the region, mostly relatives of other Afghan co-workers or families that already, that already had been assigned to their resettlement program, Revel said. The agency had already had flights and apartments set up for their reassignment, but all their plans fell apart when Kabul fell. And the need is far greater than a single organization like JFS can hope to meet. Many of our families in Seattle were still in contact with many families who didn't get out, Revel said. They weren't able to access to be allowed into the airport and were just facing the exact same thing night after night and day after day. I wish I could say that all of those families were successful. Next from JTA, fire anti-Semitic blogger, 70 State Department employees demand in letter to Blinken by Asaf Shalev. Six months after his internet post attacking Jews came to light, a U.S. Foreign Service officer remains employed by the State Department while at least 70 of his co-workers sent a letter to Secretary of State Anthony Blinken demanding his dismissal. The letter, sent July 28th, argues that Fritz Bergren is a threat to Jewish employees at the State Department and has violated department rules and ethical standards foreign policy reported after obtaining a copy. Not only is his propagation of anti-Semitic ideas highly disturbing and offensive to Jewish and non-Jewish employees alike, but as Jewish employees, we feel his presence at the department is threatening, the letter reads, according to foreign policy. For years, Berggren has maintained a website featuring screeds against Jews and the LGBTQ community and promoting white Christian supremacy. 
Jesus Christ came to save the whole world from the Jews, the founders of the original Antichrist religion, they who were the seed of the serpent, the, that brood of vipers, Bergren wrote in an October 4th, 2020 post on his website titled, Jews are not God's chosen people. Judeo-Christian is Antichrist. The Jewish Americans and Friends in Foreign Affairs employee group at the State Department organized the letter along with other Jewish State Department employees. Foreign Policy reported that Blinken, who is Jewish, responded to the letter on August 9th. I want to assure you that the department treats reports of alleged misconduct with the utmost seriousness, he wrote in the letter, adding that he could not comment on specifics for privacy reasons. The letter to Blinken was sent two days after a carving of a swastika was found in an elevator at the State Department's headquarters in Washington, D.C. on July 26th. That incident led Blinken and other top U.S. officials to issue condemnations of anti-Semitism. While there is no evidence that Bergen is behind the swastika carved into the department elevator, his continued employment with seemingly no consequences sends a message of impunity that has undoubtedly contributed to the atmosphere in which someone would dare to do such a thing, the letter reads. The letter also noted that Bergen appeared to have violated State Department rules when he displayed his government affiliation in a July 3rd post. Bergren responded to news reports about the letter with a post on his website. I am heartened to know that I have Jewish readers. I truly hope that they, like Saul, come to know Jesus Christ as literally the Son of God, he wrote. Saul, renamed Paul, converted and began preaching the message, Jesus is the Son of God. He added, even if one Jew or Gentile is converted, then it is well worth the trouble. Foreign Policy reported that Blinken's response to concerns about Bergren has been met with anger and frustration by some and understanding by others who concede that Blinken has limited power to control the speech of his employee. Next from JTA, a Hasidic rabbi created a Shabbat jacket for carrying guns in synagogues by Shira Hanau. Rabbi Raziel Cohen doesn't want you to have to draw a gun in synagogue, but if you must... He doesn't want you to waste precious time unbuttoning your kapota, a type of jacket worn by men in the Chabad Hasidic community on Shabbat and Jewish holidays. So Cohen, a firearms instructor who goes by the moniker The Tactical Rabbi, worked with Shaul Snofsky, who sells kapotas in South Florida, to create the Tactical Kapota. The jacket, which looks like any other kapota, closes with snaps instead of buttons, for easy opening. It's cost $550. The issue came up with when you wear a capota, the gartel gets in the way and the capota gets in the way and it can make it dangerous to draw your weapon, Cohen said, using the Yiddish word for the belt worn over the capota. By adding snaps underneath the buttons, the tactical capota looks like a regular jacket. Usually in a shul, we try to keep a low profile. We don't want to look like we're in a war zone, Cohen said. A video ad for the Capota shows a man studying in a synagogue when the building is attacked. The man fumbles to unbutton his Capota to reach his holstered gun with the words, Every Second Counts, flash across the screen. The video then shows the man unsnapping the tactical Capota in seconds before drawing his gun. Snofsky said some people thought the video wasn't for real. It's completely serious, he insists. 
I'm not selling fear over here. I'm selling awareness, he said. Some people are calling me and saying, is it a joke? And it's not a joke. You just never thought about it. And Ariel Banner said, quote, Jew, I have a question, unquote. It turned out to be a marriage proposal by Ben Sales. The banner dragged by a plane last week across the Florida sky looked disconcerting. Jew, I have a question, it said. Certainly it was a moment made for Twitter attracting both jokesters and anti-Semitism watchdogs. A tweet of the photo Saturday by the group Stop Anti-Semitism got more than 100 shares. Another group, United with Israel, shared the photo and tweeted, Anti-Semitism is alive and well. Others poked fun. Judging by my experience in uh, Judaism, the question is either something deep, philosophical, and existential, or when are we eating? I'm starving, one, question, one person tweeted. Ben Shapiro, the Orthodox Jewish right-wing commentator, tweeted the photo out of his three-point out to his 3.5 million followers, along with a joking, obscure reference to how rabbis answer questions of Jewish law. Turns out the banner wasn't meant to be hate speech, hate speech or a joke. It was a marriage proposal to a woman nicknamed Jew. What's that short for? Julia? Jewel? Judith? Remains unclear. According to Glenna Milberg, a local South Florida television reporter, the banner was created and flown by aerial banners whose Instagram page shows examples of similar marriage proposals, though others tend to say, will you marry me? That probably would have cleared up the confusion here. Milberg reported that Milo Sirkal Jr., a representative of Ariel Banner, said he didn't realize the banner could be read as offensive until he got a call from the local branch of the Anti-Defamation League. It was like, wait, what? What are you talking about? He said, according to News 10, Milberg Station, and then after sitting back, thinking about it, reading a few things, and having things explained to us, it was like, oh my God. Of course, the real story of the banner prompted another question. Did you say yes? According to Milberg, she did. Next from JTA, after 9-11, the U.S. helped thwart a major al-Qaeda attack in Israel, ex-FBI agent says, by Kanan Lipchiz. Al-Qaeda had planned to carry out a massive terrorist attack on Israel dance clubs, Israeli dance clubs, in 2002, but was thwarted with the help of U.S. intelligence operatives, a former FBI agent said. Ali Soufran, who, with other agents, had monitored al-Qaeda for the FBI both before the 9-11 attack on the World Trade Center in 2001 and afterward, said the information was obtained by the operatives during interrogations of a Palestinian man apprehended in Afghanistan. The Israeli paper Yediot Akhranot reported Friday in an article about Sufran. Zayn al-Ibedin Mohammed Hussein was being held at a CIA site allegedly for fighting alongside al-Qaeda there. According to the article, the attack was in the advanced planning stages when the information came in leading to arrests. Al-Qaeda estimated that the attacks to happen simultaneously at several clubs would have killed about 200 people. It was the only large-scale attempt by the terrorist groups to strike in Israel, according to the article. Mohammed Hussein left the plane slip when he told Sufran that he believed he had been captured because one of the attack's planners in Israel had talked. A 
that stage, however, U.S. intelligence was unaware of any big plans for an al-Qaeda attack in Israel. Sufran. Next from JTA, after Afghanistan's last Jew refused to leave, his would-be Jewish rescuers helped dozens of other Afghans escape instead by Ron Compeyas. Zebulon Simentov, Afghanistan's last Jew, has not left Kabul despite the best efforts of some Jewish figures and organizations. One of them was Moshe Margaretin, a Haredi Orthodox fixer whose passion is bringing Jews out of danger. Margaretin paid Muti Kahana, an Israeli-American businessman who helped extract people from war-torn Syria to be a middleman and get Simentov out. But Kahana told Margaretin what many others has, had heard. Simentov was not leaving because of his long-standing refusal to grant his Israeli wife a get or decree of divorce. Simentov feared facing Israel's legal system, which penalizes such a refusal. But Kahana hatched another idea. The team he sent into Kabul to extract Simentov learned that there were plenty of women in danger of being targeted by the Taliban as they assumed total control of Afghanistan, among them members of the country's national women's soccer team, along with judges and prosecutors. Was Margaretin interested in paying for their extraction? Absolutely, Margaretin said. Give me ten hours. Within a day, Margaretin, who is based in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, had drummed up $80,000 from his Haredi Orthodox community. He wired the funds to Kahana's consultancy, GDC, and by Wednesday, Kahana was, from his New Jersey farm, coordinating the extraction of at least four soccer players, a judge, a prosecutor, and their families over land and by air. Kahana said they numbered 23 people. Margaretin said the money would also assist the refugees after their departure. By Friday, Kahana said his team had extracted another 23 people. Kaledi Popal, the former captain of the national women's soccer team who is now based in Denmark and is leading efforts to extract the players, thanked Margaretin's nonprofit Setic Association on Twitter on Thursday afternoon as the world was reeling from the news of a massive suicide bomb attack on Kabul's airport. Thank you, Tzedek Association, for your incredible help with this life-saving rescue effort, including coordination of the airport and other routes and political connections, she said. Together we are saving lives. Margaretin said that some of the funds are being directed through Tzedek, and some are going directly to the project to assist the refugees. Popal did not add details and did not return requests for an interview, but her expression of relief came after days of tweets expressing anxiety and uncertainty. This is exactly where our players were last night, she tweeted 90 minutes earlier, attaching a video of the carnage at Kabul airport. I'm worried and nervous and feel bad in my stomach. I don't know if some of our players are here. I am worried. Margaretin was bemused by the trajectory of the week. A failed bid to persuade a recalcitrant husband to flee danger resulted in the successful rescue of women from a repressive society. He didn't give a get, a divorce to his wife. She lives in Israel, and because of that, he's scared to go to Israel, he said. That's a very fun story, and he wants money. Simentov has in the past reportedly demanded money to be rescued and to grant interviews. Moti told me, my people there on the ground are telling me there is a group of soccer players and they are very scared for their lives, Margaretin said. I believe they will be a big target for the Taliban to get killed. Maybe you want to get involved to save their lives. 
Now it's become a mission. Margaretten said Kahana and Kahana say they plan on extracting dozens more people by land and by air. Margaretten said that he projects having to raise more than $2 million for the effort. Margaretten helped lead advocacy for the passage of the First Step Act in 2018, which creates incentives for the federal prisoners to reduce their sentences for federal prisoners to reduce their sentences and helps rehabilitate them once they are out. He was seen as critical in getting congressional Republicans to back the legislation. The act is viewed as one of the major successes of the Trump administration and for Trump's Jewish son-in-law and advisor Jared Kushner. Margaretten lit the candles at the 2019 White House Hanukkah party. Margaret was moved to get involved in prison reform advocacy after seeing the havoc that imprisonment wreaked on some people he knew in his community. He told the Jewish Telegraphic Agency that, like the rescue he's funding in Kabul, his advocacy came from a place of seeking to assist Jews and ending up helping others as well. 94% people who benefited from this legislation, the First Step Act, were from minority groups, Margaret said. He's still looking out for Simentov. I told Moti Kahana, please have someone to watch on him. He doesn't want to leave, but we'll have some people keeping an eye on him that uh, no one shouldn't harm him, he said. Margaretten forwarded a photo of WhatsApp uh, via WhatsApp of Simentov on Wednesday, draining the blood out of a chicken into a metal container. This is Zebulon Simentov making a chicken kosher, Margaretten said in a voice message. Next from JTA, Jewish-Israeli support new government's proposed religious reforms, survey finds, by Ben Sales. Majorities of Jewish-Israelis back a range of reforms proposed by the country's new government, according to an annual survey. The poll by Hidush, an organization that advocates for religious pluralism in Israel, takes the pulse of Jewish-Israelis on a range of questions regarding government involvement in religious affairs, from marriage to funding for yeshivas to which stores should be allowed to open on Shabbat. As in previous years, the survey found that most Israelis object to the current religious policy, in which the Haredi Orthodox chief rabbinate controls various religious rites in Israel, from marriage to conversion to kosher certification. Majorities of the 800 respondents want the country to institute civil marriage and recognize non-Orthodox Jewish conversion. Respondents also said they support the government treating all Jewish denominations equally. Most also want to allow public transit and commercial activity on Shabbat. Public transit does not run on the Jewish Day of Rest throughout most of the nation, and Haredi or ultra-Orthodox politicians have pushed to make it more difficult for stores to open on that day. Those changes almost definitely won't happen this year, however. Israel's governing coalition, about three months old, is narrow and fragmented and probably won't embark on any major legislation that would upend a decades-old status quo. Instead, the government is pursuing incremental reforms to the way Israel regulates, funds, and provides religious services. For example, the government unveiled a plan to license independent kosher certifiers, removing the chief rabbinate's monopoly. The government also has committed to liberalizing the Orthodox conversion process and has said it will implement a 2016 plan to expand a non-Orthodox prayer plaza at the Western Wall. It is also cutting daycare subsidies that favored some Haredi families. 
The Hidush survey, which was conducted July 11th to 13th, found that Jewish Israelis support those reforms. Only 22% of respondents trust the chief rabbinate exclusively when it comes to kosher certification, whereas 25% trust a range of kosher certifiers. The majority does not care whether a restaurant has certification. In addition, 62% support the plan to cut daycare subsidies. More than a third said allowing public transit on Shabbat should be a top priority in religious policy. The margin of error for this survey was 3.5%. Voters across party lines backed the changes. A major exception were supporters of Haredi parties, which almost entirely opposed religious reforms. The index indicates that not only does most of the Israeli Jewish public support the dramatic changes that the new government is initiating, but so too do most Likud voters, Rabbi Uri Regev, Hidush's CEO, said in a statement referencing the right-wing party. Regev added that it's not a change in public attitudes, and the shift is actually on the part of the new government, which is representing the will of the public more faithfully in this regard than its predecessors. Israel's Supreme Court rejected a lawsuit seeking to recognize Jews who suffered under Vichy race laws in Morocco as Holocaust victims entitled to state compensation payments on Thursday, according to a report in Haaretz. A panel of three justices refused to hear the case, upholding a lower court's ruling that the discrimination against Jews enacted in Morocco during World War II by Nazi-aligned Vichy France does not qualify as a form of Nazi persecution under Israeli law. Morocco was a French protectorate until it achieved independence in 1956. The justices recognized that the anti-Semitic laws passed by Vichy and Nazi-aligned authorities in 1940 resulted in systemic curtailing of freedoms for Moroccan Jews in areas such as employment, education, and housing. But they ruled that because Moroccan authorities acted to harm Jews on their own accord, without being forced to do so by Nazi Germany, the victims are not eligible for compensation payments from Israel's Holocaust Survivors' Rights Authority. If successful, the lawsuit would have meant payments totaling an estimated $123 million to Moroccan immigrants, according to Haaretz. The lawsuit had also argued that the discriminatory laws generated fear among Morocco's Jews, raising another criterion for eligibility as Holocaust victims. But the justices affirmed the ruling by the Haifa District Court that the lawsuit failed to provide evidence any subjective fears were warranted under the circumstances. The Supreme Court said its conclusions reflect an interpretation of the law and should not be construed as a ruling on the historical truth. The role of the historian is separate from that of the court, and that's a good thing, the justices wrote according to Haaretz. The test of history has many participants and is subject to additions and updates which are inappropriate for a concrete legal procedure. The law, on the other hand, works according to precise rules with all the pros and cons that that entails. The Moroccan Jewish plaintiffs who brought the case can still challenge the decision by petitioning for a hearing before an expanded panel of Supreme Court justices. And next from Jewish Telegraphic Agency, two new synagogues open in Budapest by Kanan Lipschitz, Budapest. Jewish communities in Hungary opened two new synagogues as part of the annual Jewish Cultural Festival in this capital city. 
One is situated in the bustling center of Budapest, while the other is a 50-seat synagogue in an apartment building. The latter, the Rosmarty Street Synagogue, is owned by MAOIH, an umbrella group of Orthodox congregations. But MAOIH has neither the congregants nor funds to renovate and operate the place, so it will be run by EMIH, a larger umbrella organization affiliated with the Chabad Lubavitch movement. EMIH has about 20 synagogues along with some 30 emissaries. It's better that the synagogue lives than to have it remain disused as it has been for decades, Robert Deutsch, the president of MAOIH, told reporters last week. The country's three largest Jewish groups, EMIH, MAOIH, and the largest, Maz Shiz, have a tenuous relationship rife with disputes over ideology, theology, and finances. On Friday, about 300 people, most affiliated with EMIH, but also including some non-observant Hungarian Jews, attended a street celebration that culminated with the affixing of a new mezuzah at the synagogue by Rabbi Shlomo Kovas, the head of EMIH. The structure received a luxurious-looking interior decoration featuring marble walls and wooden panels with LED lights. Locals posed to have their picture taken with the revelers as they danced in a procession to music blasting from speakers they brought with them. But two middle-aged men also hurled insults at the revelers. There were no physical assaults. The larger synagogue opened in the leafy and placid Ujbuda neighborhood on the western banks of the Danube River. Housed in a historical Bauhaus building, the Ujbuda synagogue has about 200 seats and a circular prayer hall inside a rectangular space. EMIH owns and operates the shul. Following the opening, the Hasidic rapper Nisim Black performed in a concert that drew hundreds of listeners, including many non-Jews. The concert was the closing event of the week-long Jewish cultural festival, which also included a celebration of the slow-cooked Jewish dish Cholent that many observant Jews make for Shabbat. On Sunday, hundreds of pounds of kosher cholent were given out free to passers-by at a park near the synagogue. Separately, Mazashiz inaugurated a new wing at the city's Jewish charity hospital on Sunday that was built with a $14 million grant from the government. The addition advertises that Hungarian Jews vouch for one another and for others, Zoltan Radnoti, a senior rabbi with Mazashiz, told the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. Hungary once had four hospitals owned by Jewish communities, but only one remained after the Holocaust, in which the Nazis and local collaborators killed more than half of the pre-war Jewish population of about one million. Only about 47,000 people who define themselves as Jewish now live in Hungary, according to the London-based Institute for Jewish Policy Research. Son of Holocaust survivor who flew Afghan refugees to U.S., it was easy to put myself in their position, by Gabe Friedman. Last week, Delta Airlines pilot Alexander Khan flew hundreds of Afghan refugees from Germany to Dulles Airport outside Washington, D.C. as part of a U.S. government partnership with commercial airlines. It had extra special meaning for Khan, as he told CNN, for a few reasons. First and foremost, his own father was a Holocaust survivor, who immigrated to the U.S. in similar fashion. I'm the son of an immigrant in the United States. My father was a Holocaust survivor. He was liberated from Buchenwald concentration camp by Patton's Third Army 
and came to the United States not much differently than the people that are coming to the United States now, Khan told Jewish anchor John Berman on CNN's New Day on Friday. He was coming with the clothes on his back, no family, no English skills, and had to start life over again. Luckily, he was starting life over in the land of opportunity. When asked how he felt on board, Cod said that he was able to put myself in their position. This is going to be a frightening experience for them, but it has the potential to be an excellent experience for them. My father made it into the United States, learned English, put himself through school, became a doctor, and years later actually was back in West Germany as a physician for the U.S. Army at the tail end of the Cold War, he said. The Rammstein Air Base in Germany, where Kahn flew his first plane in training, and it's where he flew the Delta flight of refugees fleeing the Taliban. Khan noted that the flight's attendants prepared for the trip the night before by using their own money to buy things for the Afghan flyers, such as diapers, books, candy, and other supplies, because we knew these evacuees were coming with no opportunity to prepare, he said. Berman asked what Khan would tell his passengers years from now if he had the chance. I think I'd probably ask them, how's their experience? Have they been able to reach goals that they never dreamed possible? and to give them hope to show them that we are a land of legal immigrants and this is what built the United States. We are a generous country because we're generous people and the future is theirs, Khan said. And next from JTA, Kenneth Feinberg helps 9-11 families find worth in Obama-produced Netflix movie by Andrew Lappin. At a key moment in the new Netflix film Worth, Kenneth Feinberg, the real-life architect of the compensation fund for the 9-11 victims, is shown overwhelmed by the monumental emotional toll of the job. At a town hall meeting for victims' families, Feinberg, whom Michael Keaton until this point has portrayed as an ultra-competent professional arbiter, is assailed by critics of the fund who see its calculations as too impersonal its salve on their grief too pitiful. One stands up and angrily spits out that his fate is being decided by some Jew lawyer. That moment is as close as the film's Jewish screenwriter Max Borenstein making a sharp departure from his usual gig writing the new Godzilla movies and director Sarah Colonego, who also helmed the American remake of the dark Israeli drama The Kindergarten Teacher, get to discussing Feinberg's Judaism. It's a notable oversight given that Feinberg himself, placed in the role of a real-life Solomon, told the Jewish Telegraphic Agency at the time that he had sought refuge from Jewish texts when putting the fund together. Yet the film's depiction of the attorney who is aware that he is making judgments way outside his depth for people who at times actively despise his presence still rings true to his own account. Midway through interviewing families of victims to determine compensation, Feinberg told JTA that he was questioning the very nature of his own profession. There is a problem in valuing life based on economic wherewithal, he said at the time. Such levels of doubt and introspection are occasionally glimpsed but rarely ruminated on in worth. This is a somber, monochromal movie time to the 20th anniversary of the terror attacks. It keeps us at a safer move from the actual horrors of 9-11 while still asking us to process them on an intellectual level, 
much like how it shows Feinberg, a seasoned arbiter of compensation cases, witnessing the World Trade Center wreckage through the window of his commuter train. Soon after the attacks, Feinberg is tapped to lead the fund by President George W. Bush's Attorney General John Ashcroft and is immediately ready for the challenge. He compiles an actuarial formula to objectively assign a dollar value to each life lost and devises a plan to get at least 80% of impacted families to agree to the fund. Feinberg is so confident in his mission that he insists he takes on the work pro bono. He's confident, that is, until the families start pushing back and the hardened lawyer sees the error of his thinking. And there are other bits that question the worthiness of the entire project. For example, we learned the fund itself only came into existence because Congress wanted to protect the airline industry from being sued into the ground. So what was Feinberg working toward? There are times watching worth, even throughout the endless scenes of heart-wrenching family testimony being collected, when you legitimately don't know whether he sees his purpose as noble or cynical. Based on Feinberg's own book, What is Life Worth?, the movie is produced by Higher Ground, Barack and Michelle Obama's production company. And whether intentionally or not, it makes Feinberg out to be a kind of Jewish Obama, an intellectual Democrat handed an impossible task by Republicans who tries to reach diverse groups of people and is derided in public town halls. Also, like Obama, Feinberg is accused of being aloof and unconnected to the struggles of real life, offers vague, non-committal responses to direct questions, and must make no-win choices to reach imperfect compromises. Because this strangely familiar character type is shown operating in the period from 2001 to 2003, the end of the fund's signing deadline, the film has the odd effect of using Feinberg to depict the Bush era through an Obama-like moral calculus. It avoids the ugly racism of post-9-11 America and never once mentions war. Bitterly ironic for a film set during America's invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan and premiering this week, of all weeks, days after the U.S. military pullout from the latter. In Worth, grief alone rules the decisions. The families that Feinberg hopes to turn into claimants often don't even want money, only a compassionate ear to hear their story. By the end, Feinberg even gets to do something that Obama often fantasized about but rarely achieved, work with one of his biggest critics to reach a victory. That would-be adversary is George Wolfe, played by Stanley Tucci, who lost his wife in the attacks and organized an effort to fix the compensation fund before ultimately siding with Feinberg to declare the fund is fixed. In between, Feinberg and Wolfe hold respectful disagreements and chat cordially when they bump into each other at the opera. It's a vision of injured Americans coming together that, despite its basis in the historical record, can't help but ring a little hollow 20 years on. Since 9-11, Feinberg has applied his considered humanistic approach to victim compensation to many successive American tragedies, including the Tree of Life synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh. It's work that will continue to strike many of the affected as essential and others as superfluous, even damaging to victims' memories. The central Talmudic question governing Feinberg's life, what is a life worth, remains an ongoing project. 
Worth Open September 3rd on Netflix. And next from JTA, this Jewish family has been making honey wine for 150 years by Stacy Pfeffer. Rachel Lipman cares deeply about preserving her Jewish family's fifth-generation winemaking business, Low Vineyards, but the 28-year-old is keeping an eye on the future, too. As one of the youngest winemakers in Maryland, if not the youngest, she's pushing through boundaries in a traditionally male-dominated industry. But that's not all. Lipman is also educating customers about her family's extraordinary legacy of producing unique wines, a 150-year-old family tradition that was nearly eradicated by the Holocaust. Among the 14 wines currently available on the Lowe's Vineyards website, four are not wines in a traditional sense. They are meads, or honey wine. Meads are made with fermented honey and therefore are well-suited for the upcoming high holidays. Among the available varieties include Sicer, mead with apple juice, and Piment, mead with grape juice. A fifth-generation winemaker, Lipman's method of making mead is not unlike the way her ancestors did it in Europe. My grandfather always says you can't argue with success, she says, referring to the family's proprietary mead recipe. These days, Lipman uses modern machinery and loves scouring local farmers' markets to discover new honey producers with whom she can collaborate. According to a spate of recent articles, mead is having something of a moment. Lipman is naturally thrilled by the development, though believes there is a misconception that all meads are sweet. Her family's mead comes in varieties that are dry, semi-dry, and semi-sweet. There is a lot of experimentation going on with mead right now, similar to craft beer, she says. I even heard of a peanut butter banana mead. Central to the story of Low Vineyards is Lipman's grandfather, who grew up in Lvov, Poland, now the Ukrainian city of Lviv, prior to World War II. Before the Holocaust, Lvov was home to Poland's third largest Jewish population, behind Warsaw and Lodz. The city had a Jewish population of some 200,000, about one-third of the total, but only some 800 survived the genocide of the Holocaust. The region also boasted many wineries, meaderies, and distilleries, with the majority owned by Jews. Lippmann has spent much time uncovering her family's mead-making past. During the long months of COVID, she has sifted through Polish documents, periodicals, and newspapers to learn more. She discovered that the family meadery was in a district that housed warehouses, vodka distilleries, several meaderies, and yes, even a beer garden. In fact, the family meadery took up the length of an entire city block. The patriarch of the Lowe family in the mid-1800s was Melech Lowe, who made mead and distributed it, distributed it internationally. Melech and his wife Malka had ten sons, two of whom created their own meaderies, while the others ventured into wine distribution and marketing. One son, Isaac, established the first national meadery and beeswax, fac, uh, beeswax facility in Poland. He and his wife, Clara, had three sons, one of whom was Wolfgang, Lippmann's grandfather, who Americanized his name to William Bill upon immigrating to the U.S. During the Holocaust, the family's winemaking business was decimated, as were nearly all the members of the Low family. Bill survived, serving as part of the underground, where his multilingual skills were highly prized. He was imprisoned in a Budapest political prison in two concentration camps and eventually was liberated during a Dachau death march on April 23, 1945, 
by the U.S. Army's 99th Infantry Division. Each year, the family commemorates his special day with Bill, 95, who remains involved with the business. It's kind of like a birthday celebration for us, Lipman says. Once he arrived in America, Bill attended night school, married Lois Hendrickson, and eventually became an electrical engineer. Yet the sweet smell of the barrels from his family's meadery always reminded, uh, always remained a part of him. Upon retiring in 1982, he purchased a 37-acre plot in Fred Frederick County, Maryland, with the aim of planting grapes and continuing his family's wine and mead-making legacy. The way our family oriented ourselves, everything was about preserving the past, Lipman says. There was little discussion. There was little discussion of the future. COVID, however, served as a pivotal moment for the family business. Not only did Lipman have to safeguard her grandparents who enjoyed interacting with customers in their tasting room, she knew she had to implement some operational changes if she wanted a sustainable future. Citing Hillel the Elder's iconic quote, if not now, when, Lipman and her family made a significant investment in new fermentation tasks, which has allowed them to increase production to meet growing demand. They also remodeled the tasting room, created an online reservation system, and updated their website to showcase the family's long history in the business. Lipman credits her grandmother with helping to facilitate a lot of the recent changes. She knows we have something that cannot die, Lipman says of her grandmother. Without her, we wouldn't have been pushing for a future. Locating historical documents about her family required perseverance. Lipman joined a global Facebook group of mead makers and posted about her family's long tradition. Doing so helped her locate mead labels from her great-grandfather's business and even an article in a Lvov newspaper about how her mead-making great-uncle collected Tzedakah. She also uncovered many documents that trace the history of mead in Europe, how it was predominantly produced by monks in the 1600s to its heyday in the 1800s through World War II. These documents just say the businesses disappeared after World War II, Lipman says. It doesn't say that Jews owned these businesses, and that is why they were gone. The people and the industry were destroyed by the Nazis. I intend to make that known. As the oldest grandchild, Lippmann spent much of her childhood at her grandparents' vineyard. From cooking Passover meals with her grandmother to riding on her grandfather's tractors out to the vineyards, Lippmann was and remains exceptionally close to her grandparents. As she got older, her grandfather taught her chromatography, a technique that allows you to investigate the flavor of the wine. Lippmann ultimately decided to study plant science at the University, uh, University of Maryland and even interned at an organic vineyard in France's Loire Valley. Lippmann doesn't think her grandparents were intentionally grooming her to work on the vineyard, but does believe they wanted me to love the vineyard as much as they do, she says. She continues, when you were 21, you think, Sure, being in the alcohol business sounds great. I worked at beer and wine stores then, but the more I learned about the industry, the more serious I became about it as a future career. As Lippmann's family prepares for Rosh Hashanah 5782, be some of their red wines and meads will be on the table, along with challah, brisket, and salmon. Lippmann also buys a number of apple varieties at the farmer's market, and they'll have funny uh, honey and salt flights too. Our family has one of the longest production of meads in the world, she says. It's a pretty incredible story. Lippmann hopes to find 
Uh, Lipman hopes to continue to produce wines well into the future and watch the roots that her family planted so long ago continue to flourish. In the meantime, the Lowe family looks forward to saying L'chaim to life over their wines this Rosh Hashanah, knowing all too well the meaning of the phrase. And next, an opinion piece distributed by JTA. Has Israel let you down? Its Minister of Diaspora Affairs wants you to talk about it over the high holidays. Written by Israel's Minister of Diaspora Affairs, Nachman Shai. To the rabbis and religious leaders putting the finishing touches to your high holiday sermons, I'd like to make a suggestion. Use this Jewish New Year to talk about Israel from the pulpit. And not just Israel. Talk about the bonds between us as a Jewish people, about our shared past and imagined future. Talk about the challenges, but also the opportunities. Share with your congregants that we in Israel are slowly but surely taking responsibility for our side of the relationship in a way that you have never seen. That we realize we have disappointed you and are doing teshuva, repentance, with a sincere desire to make things right in the future. Share with them that this new government is committed to bringing back a Kotel compromise, that is, formalizing an egalitarian prayer section at the Western Wall. It is committed to learning and understanding how our actions impact your communities. Tell them that we believe in you and that we are ready for both your critique and your ideas. Most importantly, share with your communities that Israel desires to be your partner to not let our politics or diverse identities serve as barriers to our fundamental belief that we are a people with a common fate and destiny. I know this message might not be easy to convey. I've lived long enough to see how Israel has turned from a point of pride to tension, and it's understandable. Generations built their Judaism around the ideal of Israel and the promise of peace as the focal point of Jewish identity and Zionist hope. So when Israel disappoints, organized Jewish frameworks can also disappoint, intensifying political divides within communities, especially among the rising generation. So why would a rabbi waste his or her precious annual moment with a quiet audience on a subject that increasingly causes more controversy than connection? I believe the answer is simple. Despite the very significant challenges that stand between us, the truth is that we need each other, and I am convinced ultimately want to be in relationship with each other. The last year highlighted just how intertwined we are as a people when Israel's summer military operation in Gaza led not only to a frightening rise in anti-Semitism, but significant stress and frustration within communities. It is becoming increasingly imperative for us to work together to ensure ongoing safety, security, and communal cohesion. Well, that's all the time we have this week for the Jewish News Hour. This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I thank you very much for listening.